Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this LSE public lecture. My name is Mary Evans, and I want to welcome you all very much to this lecture this evening, which is to be given by Sam Smethers, the Chief Executive of the Fawcett Society. I just want to make a couple of remarks about the lecture and the Fawcett Society um, before Sam starts her talk. Um, the Fawcett Society is, a, is celebrating 150 years of its existence, and it is also 150 years and two days since the first petition was presented to Parliament asking for women to be given the vote. So it's a very special um, anniversary in the history of both women's participation in politics and the history of the Fawcett Society. I also wanted to take this opportunity to mention a history of the Fawcett Society which has just been published. The author is Jane Grant and the title of the book is um, In the Steps of Exceptional Women, The Story of the Fawcett Society. Finally, a couple of housekeeping remarks and remarks about the order of this lecture. Sam is going to speak for about 25 minutes, and then there'll be an opportunity for questions and discussion. We have to end this evening's event at 7 o'clock. And, of course, the last and final request, instruction, um, comment that I have to make is please don't forget to switch your mobile phones off. So, without further ado, let me introduce to you Sam Smethers, who is going to talk on the subject of New Horizons or the Same Old Battles, What Future for Feminism. Welcome to Sam Smethers. Thank you. Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you very much for taking the time to come here to hear me this evening. I also want to say a thank you to the LSE and to the Women's Library in particular. Um, we've had the opportunity to work with them in recent weeks on the exhibition, which I do urge you to go and see. It's a fantastic exhibition, Endless Endeavours. Um, and we managed to find in our archive, which is a drawer in the office, if I'm honest, um, a lovely brooch belonging to Millicent Fawcett. Um, jewelled brooch, absolutely gorgeous, in, in, engraved with, um, for steadfastness and courage. Uh, it was awarded to her in 1913, and that uh, can be seen in the exhibitions. It's a really special thing, but the whole thing is, is lovely. So I'm going to talk a bit about um, Fawcett and set out for you what I see as our vision, really, for the future. And I think one of the things that I always have to start off with is fundamentally what is Fawcett for? You know, why do we need the Fawcett Society? No organisation, even one that's 150 years old, has a divine right to exist. We have to justify our existence, we have to be useful, we have to be of value, uh, we have to be relevant to the future, not just celebrating the past, important though that is. It's about the future and what, what, what have we got to offer for that? So that's really what I'm focusing on today. And I see it, Fawcett's job is really joining the dots. You know, we're, we're there to provide that overarching analysis. And I also want us to be a resource for the wider women's movement, for the feminist sector. I want us to be there to support and engage with others' campaigns, as we are already doing. Because I think when I went round to people and I first got this job and said, well, why do you think we need the Forces Society? Why, why do you want it to exist? They said, well, we absolutely need you. We need you to be there to, to make those connections, to be that source of, you know, like a touchstone for us. And that's how I, that's how I see the organisation. 
And I think I also want to talk to you about why I'm optimistic for the future. So I, I think we often focus on challenges and problems, and obviously that's why we're here. We're, to, we're here to address those challenges and problems. But really, I think there's a massive opportunity that we've got today to take on some of those challenges and really move things forward. And finally, I just want to remind us about Millicent Fawcett. Now, most of you probably will know something about her already. There's some real experts in the room, actually. I mean, Jane, who wrote the book, which you can buy from the Fawcett website, by the way, um, is here. So, you know, you can't get much more expert than that. But Millicent was um, 19 years old, collecting signatures on that first petition for women's votes. Um, and she, has, she continued that campaign and saw that campaign through from the very beginning to the very end. and was in Parliament to witness the granting of universal suffrage in 1928 and then died a year later. Obviously, a happy woman, eventually. But she was there for that entire struggle. And our organisation arose from the NUWSS, which was the organisation she founded. And we became the Fawcett Society in 1953, so quite some time later... But we trace our origins back to that moment, and that's why we're celebrating 150 years. So what I want to say to you today is I think we, we've got a fantastic opportunity, but we need a new approach to tackling some of those same old battles, some of those intransigent, stubborn uh, barriers that remain. And I think one of the things I've, I've been saying consistently in the last few months is that we need to start with some new assumptions. We, 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 we start from the, the male model of life, the male dominated, the patriarchal model of life, if you like. And we deviate from that. So we have a model of work which is basically a nine-to-five model, and we adjust that to fit women's lives. But we don't start from the place where actually we, need, we have a flexible model of working life. And that is the, that's the place we need to start. Same with leave entitlements for mothers and fathers. You know, we have a model that's very much designed around mothers taking nine months paid, 12 months, if you include the unpaid period, and dads get a couple of weeks, and then maybe if she chooses to share some of her leave with them, they can have a bit of shared parental leave. But it is still a model that's presuming she's going to do the caring, rather than a model that starts off with the presumption that it could be equal. So I think if we started with some different assumptions, we get a very different outcome. So back in 1866, a woman and all she owned belonged to a man, a father or a husband. She had no rights over herself, her property or her children no access to higher education. And school was really just there to prepare girls for their role in life. It wasn't really there to educate them. And everything that they did, they were responsible for, but they had no power over. I'm reading a book at the moment about a woman in Charles Dickens' life. Um, and it talks about his first wife, and he, she had ten children with him. And he, when he got to a point where he didn't want her anymore, dumped her and went off with somebody else. She lost access to all her children. She lost everything. And that's, that was the reality of life for women in, in those days. And that's the period that Millicent Fawcett was in and the fellow suffrage movements were in when they started the campaign for women's votes. And what I think we still have hanging over us from that period is that remnants of that patriarchal society. So we haven't lost that. The patriarch is still here with us. And we can see threads from the past that, that we can detect in the present. And one of the things I want to uh, set out for you, really, is why a society which segregates children and begins to condition them at a young age is also a society that wastes human potential and undermines its economic performance. A society which refuses entry to women into a golf club and makes her wear heels at work is also a society which perpetuates violence against women and girls. 
These things are all connected. And a society which chooses to airbrush women from history is a society in which structural inequalities are still so prevalent. And the three key things I wanted to start off with was stereotyping and gender norms and the role that they play, objectification and the significance of that, and then the invisibility of women in our society. So thinking about stereotyping, by the time a child is about four years old, I like to think I know something about this, I've got a four-year-old at the moment, um, they have a very well-established view of what a girl does and what a boy does. And they impose those constraints on themselves and on others. So regular conversations in our household, well, I can't be a doctor, mummy, you know, that's the boy's job. I can't be a bus driver, that's the boy's job. These are things that they are absorbing from the culture around them. They're not things that we are indoctrinating them with, but this is part of the conditioning that we impose on children in our society. And I think the gender norms and stereotypes that we impose on children in those early years really set them up for life. And we we often find ourselves battling against those conditioned minds and those conditioned mindsets for the rest of their lives. And what I feel it's a bit like is sort of pushing water uphill, really. You know, you've, you've got this mass of influences around them, both in the education environment, but also in the retail environment. If you think about what it's like, if you ever go and buy a present for a child, a young child, you will be confronted with a boys' section and a girls' section in the shops. And that, they're creating difference and segregation where none really needs to exist, even to the point of girls colouring books and boys colouring books. They're creating separation difference. And children will expect that to be for a reason. They won't think it's irrelevant. They won't say, well, actually, there is no difference. They will presume there is a legitimate difference. And then you're battling that perception from that point onwards. And that takes us into adulthood. And then, you know, we've had the recent example um, from Boots and from Argos and other retail chains of sexist pricing in the high street. It was something that Fawcett was highlighting a few months ago. Um, and there you see them systematically charging women more for products than they were charged for men. Hairdressers charge women more for hair cuts than they charge men. And that's because of the gender norms and stereotypes that are being applied to those products and, and they're translating those into how they're treating their customers. And we sell women expensive face creams throughout their lives and make up and we tell them this is what they need to buy but we don't sell them proper financial security and pensions for example so what do they really need what do women really need but they don't need 25 pound face creams they need financial independence and security but we this is what women are conditioned to expect to spend their money on and i think it's become so embedded that we don't question it and we don't even see it it's just the way we do it And then thinking a little bit about behaviours in children. I mean, there's evidence to say that children under the age of one, certainly, but, you know, toddlers, there's very little difference in terms of their behaviours. There's there's not a gender difference there. But that starts to emerge as they get older, as they get into school and they, they go through life. And then by the time they've absorbed what is or isn't appropriate for boys and girls, we then get to teenage years when they're choosing subjects at school and then we find girls resisting 
taking science and technology, engineering, math subjects. And because they're, they're resisting those subjects, and often some of the feedback you see in, in the research about this is that well, they don't see them as feminine subjects to take. So they, they're characterising those subjects as not spaces for them. It's, it's not a space that they should be in. And which of the industries that we have skill shortages in, the, the, the same industries that we are desperate to recruit engineers, technology experts and so on, are the ones that we're actually only recruiting from half the population for, in effect. So it's fundamentally damaging to the economy. And then you think about, well, what are we, what are we taught to be as women and men? What are we taught to be? Women are taught to be nurturing, to be attractive, and to know our place. Whereas men are still taught to be strong, to conceal their emotions, and to just go after what they can get. Be ambitious, be thrusting. And if you deviate from those norms, either as a woman or a man, then that's challenging. Some people can do it comfortably, but others find it challenging to do that. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. And I think, I don't know how you would agree with me on this, but I think actually it's comfortable to slip into stereotypes. It's like putting on comfortable slippers. It's what we're familiar with. We often just slip into it without, even, again, even noticing. Because they're very powerful, seductive things. So sometimes I feel like you know, we're sort of like dinghies on the sea, resisting this tidal wave of socialisation. But actually, combined together, we can still affect change. So now I'll think a little bit about objectification. If we don't challenge the small things, we perpetuate a society in which women are objectified and controlled, and gender-based violence becomes commonplace. So I think these things are all connected. Now I want to think a little bit, we, we obviously you probably saw it, we did this campaign in response to the heels story, a woman sent home because she didn't have heels at work. She forced it to Flats Friday, we, we did a little social media campaign a few days later. And we got a huge amount of engagement with that. And it was obviously a, a light-hearted way of making a serious point in terms of control over women's uh, dress and so on. But then we also asked, well, have you, you know, tell us other examples of when this has happened. You give, us, give us some other... And other people started tweeting us with other incidents of it. So, you know, we had one woman told her she, she worked in a casino and she's told to always keep her manicure kit with her so she could always do her nails. Um, another woman said, well, I was told my afro was unprofessional, so I was sent home. And one of the best headlines I've seen this year, I think, which uh, I have to say really made me laugh, was the, the story about BA's female cabin crew who won the right to wear trousers in January 2016. So why are we facing things that seem completely bizarre to me? Women winning the right to wear trousers at work. Is that a fight we should be having, really? Why does anyone feel the need to tell women to wear skirts rather than trousers? Heels rather than flat shoes? What's that about? That's not about professional dress code. That's not about being able to do your job. It's not even about being smart. It's about you looking attractive. It's about a perception of who you are. It's you, you as a woman and your sexuality, that's what it's about. And that's what we have to stop uh, in its tracks. And then thinking a little bit about younger women in particular, I think this is a really significant issue because 
you know, we've seen today, just in the news today, the NSPCC releasing some information and, and the police as well about the prevalence of sexting in the schools. And the House of Commons Women and Equality Select Committee is holding an inquiry into this issue at the moment. Um, and Girl Guarding UK has found that two in five young women feel pressure to stay slim to have a better chance at job interviews. One in four feel they have to wear high heels or a lot of makeup to improve their chances. And we see beneath it this constant obsession with what women look like and the way that translates into how we control them. So this is about power and control fundamentally over women. And what I think that means is that every woman becomes fair game. And it's the thread that connects it all. We did some work ourselves with, with younger women, sort of consulting them on what they felt the issues were for them and the issues that they wanted Fawcett to be working on. And the kinds of things they said to us, well, you know, we can't say no to a guy in a bar without worrying about how he's going to react. This might turn violent, it might turn nasty. So we've got to manage that situation. It's our job to manage him because we can't be sure how he's going to cope with us saying no. And again, that's not where we should be starting from, is it? You know, they're responsible for his reaction. Why? That's a perfectly legitimate answer. If someone asks you a question, you say no to it. But the fear of that situation and how that can escalate. They also said things like, well, you know, their families told them they couldn't go out in the evenings, but their brothers were allowed to. Different treatment within their families because, just because they're, they're a girl, just because they're female. So I think this issue about male violence is kind of always there. And then we've got through social media this growing scale now, which we claim the internet campaign has really highlighted very effectively, growing scale of misogyny online. So we have overwhelming attacks on women. If they, if they voice an opinion, if they, ca- if they lead a campaign, I mean, you know, the campaign that Caroline... Fiado Perez led to get a woman on a banknote led to her receiving multiple death threats and rape threats. It's quite extraordinary, quite vitriolic, and it's on a scale that is really hard to believe. But it's true and it's happening. And the, the individual woman is faced with the choice of she can report them, she can uh, uh, cut them off from her account, but she can't be protected from that herself. So if you're receiving 600 tweets attacking you in one go... Why should it be her job to deal with each of those individuals? Why should it be? Surely the technology we have and the platforms we have, she takes some responsibility for that and protect her from that. And I would say that we've got the balance wrong there. She needs the ability to reject it, but she also needs to be protected from encountering that in the first place. And so what we see is overwhelming misogyny, but actually there's no hate crime based on sex. There is no provision in the law for hate crime based on sex. There is for other strands of equality, but not... For sex. Now, at the time that was being legislated for, I think there was some concern about other crimes of violence against women being reclassified as hate crime, and so it was resisted because that wasn't helpful. That isn't what people wanted, and that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm simply saying we've got a new world now, and we've got this overwhelming growth in misogyny, and we need to deal with it. And, and I think we need a new law that does extend it to sex. And then thinking about the invisibility of women in our society. And we've been supporting <laughs> Caroline Criado Perez's campaign for a statue of a suffragette in Parliament Square, which this week she called for 
uh, she called for that statue to be Millicent Fawcett, which was fantastic. So on the day that we were celebrating 150 years of the Fawcett Society, she made the announcement that she wanted it to be a statue of Millicent. But, you know, there were very, very few women statues, or statues of women, in our public spaces. Partly a product of history, of course, but, you know, just like when we were looking at women on passports and women on banknotes, it's not like we really are so lacking in women to celebrate in our history that we can't find statues of those. It's, it's women that we could put, make statues of, but actually, that's what we have. We have a, a tiny fraction, I think she's made a calculation, of 3 5% of statues in the UK are women, and overwhelmingly they're men, usually men on horses with some form of weapon. <laughs> and the message I think that tells us is that men's achievements were greater and men is somehow are superior. Because that's what we're celebrating, that's what we're seeing, that's the message we can take from that. And then you bring it up to date with something like a golf club, where the space is, is, the space is theirs to control, the members to control, because they're exempted from legislation, which means that they'd have to admit women. So you can find a situation where they can just say, no, we're not going to admit women members. And I don't think there's any legitimate reason why a golf club should be a space where they can discriminate on grounds of sex, or any other strand for that matter. I think there are sometimes reasons why you need exclusive spaces for certain groups, but I don't think a golf club is one of them. So I think that needs to change. So what, what are the consequences of all this? Yes, it's irritating and it's unfair and, you know, we don't like it, but really, what does it matter at the end of the day? If you're not interested in equality, what are you interested in? Well, maybe you're interested in the fact that it's a waste of human potential if women can't fulfil their potential in society. And for the economy, the gender pay gap itself has been calculated to cost us £600 billion a year, just by its very presence. So if we close the gender pay gap, we could add £600 billion to the value of the economy. That's according to the government. So if you don't believe that statistic, that's where they get it from. And we don't recruit the best person for the job. We think we do. So often when I, when I say, well, we need quotas for women on boards, time-limited quotas, the response I always get is, well, of course, we do want the best person for the job. We don't want to use a quota because you won't get the best person for the job with a quota. And I always say, well, you think you get the best person for the job now? How? You recruit in your own image, you exclude half the population. How on earth could you think you get the best person for the job on that basis? And organisations don't have the best talent, which means they don't make the best decisions. And there's lots of evidence to suggest, particularly at board level, you will get better performing boards with a gender balanced board, with diverse composition of that board. You improve board performance. It's well evidenced, <laughs> which is why the government set up the Davies Review, set a target of 25% women on boards. It wasn't done because they just wanted to do it to be fairer to women. It was because they saw there was a real business case for doing it. So the penny is starting to drop that actually there are real significant benefits to gender equality. And what are the consequences for women of this inequality that we face? Well, we know their contribution is undervalued, the caring contribution in particular, calculated to be worth £132 billion in terms of money it saves the, the taxpayer. The constrained choices mean there's talent wasted. Women not going into subjects that they should be going into, not going into careers that they should be going into. And the gender pay gap, she loses hundreds of thousands of pounds over her lifetime in practice. The gender pay gap represents not just a figure, a snapshot in time, currently 19% for all work, 14% for full-time 
work, the mean average of full-time work, but it effectively is a life course, a lifetime's gap, which grows as she gets older. So by the time you're retired, the pensions gap is 40%. So men are getting 40% more than women, which is a gap that's been growing and penalised over her lifetime. And they're underrepresented in top positions. As we've said, that has a cost to the economy, but it has a cost to women too, because they're not getting those opportunities at the top. And at the bottom of the pay scale, they're trapped on low pay. So who are the ones who are benefiting from the new living wage? Well, the women who are on the minimum wage, or even not getting that beforehand. So 61% of the beneficiaries of the new living wage are women. A lot of them in the social care sector. And then, of course, going back to the issue of violence against women, you've got one in four women experienced domestic violence, 1.4 million women last year experiencing domestic violence, two women each week still dying at the hands of a partner or former partner. And then we've got the sort of prevalence of casualisation of violence, lag culture on campuses, sexual harassment in schools. You know, Ofsted doesn't even have a category of bullying for sexual harassment. They don't recognise it in their guidance, so they've got other forms of bullying named, but sexual harassment, sexual, sexual bullying is not in their documentation. It's a massive gap. And what are the consequences for men? Well, they're trapped in masculine behaviours they don't necessarily want to display. They're inhibited from showing their nurturing side, still much less likely to request flexible working, for example, and less likely to get that request uh, accepted. Harder to take leave because they don't get the enhanced rates of pay on leave that women would get in most cases. So it just doesn't make financial sense for men to take time off if they're not going to earn very much money through the leave system when they do. It's bad for them because they see the women in their lives dis dis uh, badly affected as well. They don't want their mothers, their daughters, their sisters experiencing this kind of treatment. And when we asked them, because we did a big survey in, in January, we asked, well, you know, do you think you'd be better off if we had a more equal society. Four in ten men said they would personally be better off. They saw it as an advantage to them to achieve a more equal society. And seven in ten said they thought it would be better for the economy. So actually, the majority of men are getting it. The majority of men are, are kind of behind what we're trying to do. So what are we trying to do? What's our vision and how do we get there? I think, starting at the beginning, fundamentally, I want a society where girls and boys can fulfil their potential. So we have to tackle that gender stereotyping in the early years. Open up a debate about gender. I want us to be able to start to really explore what are the critical consequences of us channeling children far too young. And I think everything that we know about early years education is that it's absolutely the most critical time in children's lives in terms of impact that you can have on them over their life course. But we're not thinking clearly enough and in a, such a focused way as we need to be about gender stereotyping in those early years. So I really want us to take a look at that. And I think at the moment our legislation, although much of it is good and valuable, is still got some significant gaps. And I'll give you an example. As well as the hate crime gap I was talking about earlier, we've, we've got no provision at the moment for multiple discrimination. So there's, there's section 14 of the Equality Act talks about discrimination that you can experience on multiple grounds. So as older women, 
you know, Miriam O'Reilly case, you might remember, discriminated against by the BBC. She could be discriminated against on grounds of age or gender, but not together. So her experience was as an older woman. It wasn't as an older person or as a woman. It was as an older woman. And that experience wasn't addressed by the law because it wasn't catered for. Similarly, a Muslim woman who's being discriminated against for wearing the hijab, that would not be addressed in our legislation because it's only one dimension of your identity at a time that our law can cope with. And I think that fundamentally has to change. We're living in a more intersectional society uh, than we've ever done. But our law hasn't caught up with that. And I think we've, we've got the balance wrong in the legislation. The responsibility has to be with the institution to promote equality. Just like the public sector duty established, it was a responsibility on public institutions to promote equality. It hasn't been brilliantly enforced and applied, but it's still there. That's, that's the principle of it. But it's still really left to the individual to challenge. And it's incredibly hard to bring any kind of legal case. We've got employment tribunal fees, which prohibit claims. 80% drop in tribunal claims as a result of those fees. So although you want people to be equipped to challenge, you don't want to rely on that as your only way to achieve equality because it's not sufficient. And I really want a society where women and girls don't experience gender-based violence and violence against women. It's a coalition we're a part of. But we need sex and relationship education in schools, fundamentally. Now, there's a stat from the police report today saying the majority of children didn't understand what consent meant. They didn't have a concept of consent. How can we allow young people to grow up, grow up not understanding within their sort of relationships, they, in the way they engage with women, and, uh, that they, they don't know what consent is, that they can't, they can't appreciate whether a girl's saying yes or no? And yes, I want equal representation. We want more women into positions of power. We've just launched a new project on women in local government looking strategically at the new structures of local government that are being created because we're creating institutions with huge spending power, like the Northern Powerhouse, billions of pounds of spending power in the Northern Powerhouse, no transparency about gender equality or diversity within those institutions, deals being done in the Treasury with a few men from those local authorities doing deals with George Osborne over who's going to get which powers and how, billions, how many billions of pounds they're going to be able to spend, but no regard at all for where women are in that system. <coughs> And what we will get is poor decision-making, because all the evidence tells us that's what will happen, and we'll get the wrong priorities. You know, we could be using those institutions to close the gender pay gap, create a care economy, grow uh, investment in those areas, which will really support families and invest in getting more women back into work. But actually, that's not what we're going to be doing. So we want to be looking at that over the coming year. And yes, we need to close the gender pay gap. We've obviously got some progress on that with the new gender pay gap reporting requirements which are coming into force in October, which is great. And there's a real opportunity there for us to make some headway with employers. And so we're going to be focusing heavily on that. But fundamentally, we need to change those assumptions, the starting point that we, we, we begin from. We need to start where care is valued. You know, we are approaching a period where, you know, we've already got more over 65s than we have under 16s. The number of over 80s is going to almost double by 2050. We are going to need people to spend time caring for each other. And yet we don't in any way have the capacity to cope with that at all at the moment. We haven't got the informal carers that we need, and we certainly can't pay our care workforce anything like the kind of 
salaries they need to, to live on. And the care sector is fundamentally in crisis. So without a significant shift in our attitude to care, and I always say, well, care is like a currency. It's like the new currency. It's what we need. Not quite more than money, but it's as much as, much as we need money, we're going to need that. You know, and if you think about what's happening to local services, we've got social care services where thresholds are going up, they're being pulled back. Older people are being left routinely without the care and support they need, isolated in their homes. And the only people that we're relying on to really pick up the slack on that is older women, so women in their 50s and 60s, who are the primary people who are being called upon to provide the care that those even older relatives need. And they're often caring for others down the age range too, so sort of sandwich generation carers. But those are also the same generation that we're expecting to stay and work longer to pay for their pensions and pay for their own social care later on. So the whole system is fundamentally flawed and it's based on the assumption that women don't worry, we'll pick up the slack and they'll care. But actually, I think increasingly that's going to be a flawed assumption. And you know, the fundamental thing, you know, I was asked this morning on um, a woman's hour, well, what's your top priority? And I said, well... It's about equalising care between women and men. Fundamentally, at the moment, the motherhood penalty is a very real thing. So if you look at what happens to women when they have children, the pay gap grows, they don't get back into work at the rate they were at before, they actually really never recover salary-wise on the whole. And if they have two children, well, forget it, really. The childcare costs are astronomical and they just aren't likely to recover their earning power. And then, of course, they may be caring for someone later on, so there might be a third exit from the labour market at that point. But there's also something else, because when we ask people, well, what do you think, when a man has a baby, does he become more or less committed to his job? And when a woman becomes a mother, does she become more or less committed to her job? Overwhelmingly, people said, well, he becomes more committed and she becomes less committed. So the perception is that the pro... The act of becoming a parent is very different and the consequence is very different for women and men. And that's, not, yeah, that's, that's just a sort of attitudinal thing in, in society, but it was very strong amongst employers too. So the people who were making decisions about recruitment were also displaying those attitudes as well. And then, of course, we've got the really significant issue of pregnancy discrimination in our society where 54,000 women each year lose their jobs forced out of their jobs because of pregnancy discrimination. Now, that is a figure that's gone up. 30,000 it was 10 years ago. It's almost doubled in that time. And we haven't doubled the number of women or the number of mothers in the labour market in that time. So the, the incidence has gone up. Lots of problems. But I do want to tell you a little bit about why I feel positive, why I feel optimistic, because I think there is a real opportunity to drive some change. I don't want to end on a negative note. Firstly, there is a massive resurgence in feminism, particularly amongst the young. One in five, 80 to 25 year olds, when we ask them, says they describe, sorry, women, I should say, describe themselves as feminist. It was about 7% for the whole population. So really low. But overwhelmingly, 80 odd percent believed in gender equality. So they may not call themselves feminists, but they're the hearts and minds of the British population are very much with us in terms of what we're trying to achieve. So there's a consensus that gender equality is a good thing. And most significantly, and I think this is the thing that has changed in 10 years, there's an acceptance of the business case for equality and an acceptance which finds itself in government. So we've got a government which actually believes 
that if we close the gender pay gap, we get more women on boards, it's good for business, it's good for productivity. We didn't have that 10 years ago. We didn't have that belief at that level. People would nod and they'd sort of, you know, say the right things and, you know, make you think they believed it, but they didn't really. And we wouldn't have had the implementation of gender pay gap reporting 10 years ago. We had the legislation in 2010, but it, they didn't implement it. And it took a coalition government to implement it and a Tory government to, to bring it in now. So actually, we've arrived, as far as that's concerned, in a way that we hadn't done 10 years ago. And gender roles are changing. Men are doing more caring. If you look at the percentage figures on you know, the, the amount of time men spent caring for children back in the 70s, I think it was something like 15 minutes a day. It was crazy. And now it's about two and a half hours a day. And it's going up all the time. Men want to take on more caring roles for their children. So we are seeing a significant shift there. And I think, you know, we've got a fantastic teacher in Millicent Fawcett, really, in that she had the tenacity and determination to see it through. If you think about the obstacles she had to overcome in 1866 and what the world looked like to her and all the things she had to campaign against, she had to spend a lifetime in the pursuit of what must have seemed like an impossible goal at times. But she didn't waver. She stuck with it. For 62 years, she campaigned for universal suffrage for women and brought with it, that, that suffrage movement was about the vote, but it was about much more than that. She, you know, access to higher education, property rights for women, rights over their own bodies, rights to access their children if they split up from their husbands. And she built coalitions, she made compromises, she was a player. And she took men with her, she made male allies along the way, and she persuaded one by one every member of that House of Commons that women should have the vote. So I think that's a lesson we need to learn too. We still need to persuade those in power, and still overwhelmingly those in power are men. And we need to make common cause with those who are the progressive voices, because there are many progressive voices. So it needs to be the progressives against the misogynists. And I think, for me, I can hear in my voice a little voice that says, yes, we can, because I believe that if she can do it 150 years ago, then with all the advantages we've got now, and all the lessons we've learned now, surely we can take the next step for gender equality, at least in her name. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Now, um, there are some ro roving mics, so if you have questions or indeed comments that you'd like to make, perhaps you could just put your hands up and um, the stewards will bring you a mic. Yes, please. Thank you. Hi. Uh, my name is Farah Khalik. I'm a journalist. So I'm researching an article on sexual discrimination on trading floors at investment banks. And I want to know, has the Fawcett Society uh, commissioned any research on women in finance and what more can be done to attract women to, to the trading floor? So that there are plenty of women that do work in finance, but I think uh, when it comes to trading, it's still very male-dominated. Thanks, um, are there any more? In, uh, no, I think perhaps probably just... Yes, there's one just there. So could we take that question as well, please? Thank you. Yeah, my name's um, Anna Hill. I work for the Feminist Times. Um, I was just wondering, on a positive note, um, what do you think Millicent Fawcett would be most pleased about if she could come back in 2016? <laughs> Thank you. And there is one more question here, so we'll take that one as well. Is that okay? Um, 
My name's Sharon Maxwell-Magnus. I'm an academic. You talked about um, intersectionality. And I wondered, um, we're sitting in the LSC where there was controversy over the segregated seating in March 2016 of a a society event, and there's been much more controversy um, over similar... Nadia Hussein, for instance, mentioned that she hadn't been allowed... Although she's a role model in many ways, she hadn't been allowed to go to university... And clearly the intersection of culture and gender is a difficult one. And I wondered what sort of things you thought would be the way forward without threatening people's identity. Is that... Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, so on women and finance, um, we haven't commissioned research, but I did do some research for a presentation to some trust fund um, uh, organisations recently. So I was looking into women in finance for that. Um, and what's really clear is that finance sectors, obviously the gender pay gap is much worse in finance than it is. It's almost the worst sector, I think, in the economy, so in terms of it's about 35% on average. Um, but then when, within finance, you kind of it's like concentric circles of, of worseness, if you like. So trust funds management tends to be one of the worst areas because it's one of the least scrutinised. You know? So the more visible end of finance tends to be a bit better, and they're trying a bit harder to get their women promoted and progressed and so on. So the banks and um, some of the insurance industry, you know, the ones that are a little bit more familiar to us, they tend to be performing a bit better, whereas the ones who are a bit more hidden um, uh, are, are doing a bit less well. But I think, again, there's sort of winds of change are blowing through the industry, if you see what I mean. And the gender pay gap reporting requirements that are coming in are going to be quite significant. That's the thing that they're focusing their attention on. So I think the other thing that's important to notice about that, which is important for finance, is they're being required to publish their gender pay gap in bonus payments as well as basic salary. Now that is really going to potentially drive a bit of a a hole through all kinds of um, financial arrangements there might be in in some of those organisations. So, you know, we're, we're quite interested to see what happens there. Um, on um, what would Melissa Fawcett be most proud of? Goodness, I think that's a really hard question. Perhaps I was campaigning to get a statue of her, but then if she was alive, she wouldn't need one. Um, I think the fact that she is, she's still so relevant, um, and I think that's a double-edged sword. She's relevant because we've still got massive challenges on gender equality. So, you know, in a way, she wouldn't be so relevant if we if we'd closed the gaps and if we'd achieved equal representation and so on, then perhaps we wouldn't still need to, to remind ourselves of it because she is so relevant. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that we're doing all this very much in her name, she's very present, if you like. Um, I'd hope she'd like that. Um, and culture and gender. I think this is something I think the force needs to do some more work on. I think we're really interested to look at issues, for example, do some more work on um, VME women in the economy, um, transitions from education into employment for certain groups. We know that, for example, you know, some um, women do incredibly well in certain ethnic groups in terms of education, but actually don't, that doesn't translate into doing well once they go into the workforce. I think we need to look at that transition. Um, and I always think you know, it's really important to to you know, make front and centre the sort of voices of the women you're talking about. So, you know, if we're going to do a piece of work on Muslim women, it, it will be Muslim women's voices we'll be majoring on. It won't be our voices, my voice, or whatever. You know, we'd have to put them very much at the heart of it because that's who we've got to to hear. Um, but I think you know, force it needs to do a lot more work on its intersectional 
identity, if you like. Okay, are there any... There's one question here, and then there's going to be another one there in the centre. Thank you for your talk. Uh, it's okay, the voice? Mm -hmm. yeah. I am an academic from Israel. Um, I think that uh, feminism has, uh, has done fantastic things on the one hand. On the other hand, it has such a bad name. Um, what future for feminism, really? Another question. There was a person just in the center yeah. here. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, my name's Effie and I work um, within Outreach and we work with children. Um, something that we're looking at into right now is um, the issue of FGM and breast dining. Um, I just wanted to know what your thoughts are because obviously from parents um, and family members, they think that they are protecting the, their child and the girls and I just wanted to know what your thoughts on tackling this issue is. Okay, there's one more question over there, please. Could we have that one? Thank you. Hello. Um, I'm Judy Wiseman, and I wondered if you could reflect a bit more on why you think or how the business case has been accepted. I mean, I've spent sort of many years campaigning around equal pay, and um, particularly uh, in relation to women in management. And we have for years had studies trying to show that the bottom line is improved by having more women managers. I've always been rather sceptical about these studies, but I use them, absolutely happy to use them um, in any campaign. So I'm just sort of curious as to, and I do recall 30 years ago when we started making the business case. So I'd love you to sort of just reflect a bit more on, you know, how is it actually that the government has accepted this? What do you think has been the crucial convincing um, kind of link that's that's made the difference in terms of that. Mm. Okay, thank you. So, um, go back to the sort of future of feminism. I mean, I'm, I, I, I take your point. I know that feminism has a bit of a bad name, and you know, people often say, "Well, I, you know, I support gender equality, but I'm not a feminist." You know, Meryl Streep famously said that, didn't she? And others find it a, a word they still resist. I mean, my attitude is, you know, I don't really care whether people call themselves feminist or not. To be honest, I mean, I think it's great that we do and I celebrate those who do but really I want people to come to the issues that we're campaigning on and help us to achieve change so I've got a you know a, a sort of all embracing approach to it I just think look I don't mind whether you like the word or not whether you want to call yourself feminist but let's let's focus on what we're trying to achieve and can we get that you know can we get that moving forward and that's how we can kind of build some of the coalitions and alliances with people who might be in positions of power but actually don't feel comfortable being confronted with the feminist word every five minutes. Um, I think what I would say is I think that there is a resurgence in feminism right now, which is a really positive, celebratory thing. And so although it still has those sort of hangovers of negativity, it's more positive now and it's been used more, much more widely, particularly amongst younger women, than ever before. But there's also a bit of a backlash to it too. So if you look at the poll we did in January, showed really strong growth in, in sort of feminist attitudes amongst young women, but actually... A, quite a big minority, a large minority of young men, really quite hostile too. So it was, a, it, it was quite a polarising picture for that generation. Um, and I think we've just got to keep making the positive case, really. And we, you know, we sell T-shirts, so this is what a feminist looks like. We're fabulous and feminist. Go to our shop, you'll see, you can buy anything you like, it's got the word feminist on. So we'll always be there championing it. 
Um, on FGM, I mean, again, it's not an issue force that's done a lot of work on, but we did have an event on Tuesday night where Hebo Wadare, who's a feminist, uh, sorry, an FGM campaigner, um, was on the panel, and she was incredibly... Um, inspirational speaker and you know we're going to be doing more work with her promoting her um she, she sat there in the Atlee suite in parliament and just repeatedly said the word vagina 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 and just <laughs> had the whole room in stitches and she was really just fantastic um uh, advocate for the cause and she's breaking new ground all the time and challenging you know in, within her own community which is obviously incredibly difficult but in such a positive way and really making a difference so i think you know, it's, it, these are sort of issues which won't ever be Fawcett's lead campaigns because others are doing it better and more appropriately for them to campaign on, but we can enable and support and give a platform to. So, you know, we're going to give her another opportunity probably to speak at an event in November and, you know, just support her cause. Um, and on the business case, I'm not totally sure I know the answer to that. I think, I think part of it is having more women in politics and in positions of power within the Conservative Party too. So there have been more women's voices on the issue. I think more women in business, but also recognition that actually we, we've got these women so far, but we won't really crack it unless we take the next step. So it, there, there's just been more will to see that evidence, perhaps, although that evidence has kind of always been there. You know, it's not a new case. It's not new evidence, really, but I think there's a new will. Um, and that's fine. You know, let's make the most of that. And, you know, the gender pay gap reporting, it, it's, it's really... I, I kind of fully expected them to roll back on it. I fully expected them to say they were going to do it and then suddenly shelve it. But, you know, the indications are it's going to go ahead. So I think that's going to be quite a big shift. And companies are starting to really get a little bit worried. Okay, thank you. Um, there's a question there. There's two questions. There's a question in the front and one question there. So we take this three and then yeah. perhaps... Okay, do you want to go first? Okay, hi. Uh, I'm Megan Stodel. Um, so uh, kind of like connected to the kind of idea of uh, having a business case for kind of women in business and why that's kind of economically important. Um, it kind of, although I kind of like support that as an idea and I suspect it's true, it also kind of worries me that people are making the reason that those things get advanced is because, oh, it's beneficial to the economy, like, you know, it's, it's better for the economy if women are in, in business or whatever, rather than, you know, the other kind of principled arguments. And at the start, you talked a bit about how it's really important to challenge assumptions um, and how actually, how we even, like, perhaps conceptualise things is really important um, in terms of, like, advancing. Um, so I was wondering how you kind of weigh up those two things um, and how, particularly thinking about campaigning and activism and changing people's minds, um, whether it's kind of, like, thinking more about, like, outcomes, kind of necessarily possibly regardless of what, why they come about or um, kind of like changing those online attitudes. Okay, there's a question over there. Um, we, we, you talked about like different issues and people are asking about different issues, but we really do have a fundamental cultural problem uh, that's really deeply ingrained, I think, you know? And um, I just wonder if, if there's some way that that more enlightened culture could rub off in some way. I mean, only Denmark comes to mind, really, not much else. But if it's there, maybe there's some way of, like, rubbing up against it and having uh, some, I don't know, comparisons of, of, of different aspects of culture or something with a more positive model might be useful mm -hmm. because the culture that we've got 
and we're stuck with and we always sway back to even though some we might win on some fronts it's fundamentally there and um yeah i guess like a, a modeling modeling thing yeah okay thank you hey, my name is tom schiller and you started right at the beginning about referring to the way in which male models are always used and then it's a question of how the female pattern deviates from the male and I, I wanted to ask a vocabulary question really about how we should describe careers differently because a, discontinu a discontinuous career or part-time jobs is always again with reference to the male model so I've, I've just finished a, a book on why women work below their level of competence and I can't find a, a, a good term that describes a, an unconventional type of career. Can you help? Mm, uh -huh. um, okay, business case first. Um, I says I'm, I'm quite a sort of pragmatic person, basically. So I always think you have to start from where people are and bring them towards you. So when it comes to, you know, influencing David Cameron or, you know, Theresa May or whoever it might be, you know, you've, you've got to engage with them on, basically on their turf and then bring them to your issue. They're not going to come to, to the issue in the way that others might come to the issue. They're, they're going to come to it with, from, from their cultural perspective, their political perspective. Um, and that's just the reality of where you are. So I don't, I, I will always make the moral case, but it will never be enough persuade some people so you have to bring make an, a, a strong what i would say business case outcomes case you know, and what are the outcomes they're interested in you know well, i know what i'm interested in but it doesn't necessarily mean they share my vision for what what it should be and again you know if you can achieve the outcome you're looking for by persuading them on their terms well so be it if you get to the same goal i don't really mind you know and maybe somewhere along the way they change their perspective too you know and I think, again, you can see that through the engagement we've had with some of the, the political class over the last 10 years or so. Um, uh, in terms of... Um, I'm just trying to remember. I've, lost, I've forgotten one of the questions. I'll, I'll do the, the, the language one, and then you can remind me of the other one in a second. Um, in terms of language, I mean, I think, I think full-time, part-time work is definitely problematic. I think because we, we, we structure things in a very kind of block, you know, you're full-time, you're part-time, what are you, you know. Um, so really we should just be talking about work and shouldn't we talk about full-time or part-time work at all. And we should be talking about paid and unpaid work, you know, so there's work that's paid, work that's unpaid. Um, I think what are, one of the realities of the sort of changing um, working life or working patterns, if you like, which we're all going through, not only women, but is a more fragmented you know, uh, erratic pattern of work. You know, so there's a linear progression of, of the working man from sort of, you know, the age of 20-odd when he enters the workforce all the way through to retirement. It just isn't a pattern that really you see anymore. It's not a recognised feature of, of work anymore. You know, people will maybe have two or three different careers, have to retrain and so on. They'll take time out of the labour market. So, you know, if we, if we created and designed work around... You know, really around the sort of women's lives and the fragmented working lives that women have, we'll actually get it right for men as well because men are increasingly adopting those kinds of patterns too. So if we get it right for women, we'll get it right for men too. And that was a kind of a mantra we had around pension reform 10 years ago, but it's still true now in terms of how we design work. Um, 
I think pensions is a good example because occupational pensions are tied to the employer. So if you pay into an occupational pension scheme, you do it while you're at that workplace, and then you leave, you go somewhere else, and your, your pension is left hanging you know, in a tiny little pot, wherever it turns out to be, with that employer, and you go somewhere else, and you start off a new pension somewhere else, and then you end up with like three or four different pension pots through your working life. Whereas if you had a pension that travelled with you, how much more sensible would that be? So why not have a pension that actually the employer pays into and contributes while you're there, but it's yours and you take it wherever you go? And then you don't have this fragmented picture, but you just you have that pension and it's with you forever. But the whole system is designed around a model which is, you know, men's going to be there, he's going to pay into that pension over his working life and he'll have it and it'll be a nice pot to retire with and that's a nice tidy assumption to make and it just doesn't fit anymore. So I haven't got much in way to offer you in terms of vocabulary, but I think... You know what you're doing and what you're, what you're focusing on is absolutely right, and that's the reality of, of working life. I'm sorry, what have I forgotten the other question? What the was difficulties it? in the culture at the moment? Oh yes, yes, sorry. Um, so you talked about Denmark. We, yeah, I think Denmark is probably be my my favourite place to live if I wasn't living here. I think childcare alone would, would sell it to me. Um, we often we often make comparisons. So when you talk about family policy in particular and childcare, people always sort of point to the Nordic model and say, look. You know, they can do it like that over here. Why can't we do it over here? And it's, it's a double-edged sword, really, because people, you know, look at it and say, yeah, but we're just not them, and they can't, they can't bridge the gap. So it's, it almost puts people off when you keep pointing at those wonderful countries that, you know, are performing so much better than we are in terms of family policy and childcare provision and so on. So I think there, were, there are certainly lessons to be learned internationally. I think the more you say we should, we should have the Nordic model, it... it, it it doesn't quite carry when you're trying to persuade somebody. That's been my experience of it anyway. Um, so I think you're right, culture is different here. And what are the things that you know, create that culture, actually? And it's, it's very different to what's created the culture in Scandinavian countries. And so, you know, we, again, we are where we are. It's a pragmatic response, but we've got to make the culture we've got work better. And I think, going back to the sort of point I made about care, you know, I think where we're going over the next 10 to 20 years is really significant in terms of the kind of care support we're going to need. So there is an opportunity there to invest in care and in the care infrastructure in a very different way and treat it like infrastructure spend. But obviously that takes a massive political decision, a huge change in approach. That's a long-term game, trying to achieve that kind of change. But actually that's the kind of trajectory we need to be on because all the big drivers are going to be taking us there anyway in terms of the ageing population. So... Um, I, th- I think there's still possibility of change, but you know it may be a 10-year program of change or even a 20-year program of change. It's not something we're going to see quickly. I'm very sorry, and um, we are going to have to stop at this point because it's seven o'clock and we have to leave this this room. Um, I want to say a very warm thank you to Sam for. Um, doing two things. It's uh, yet again achieving the the famous double shift um, for making the very powerful case for the need for feminism but also for demonstrating its vitality. So thank you to Sam and thank you to to you the audience for your questions as well. Thank you.